Everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of the Wiggly Podcast. Now, I'm kind of on my own today, but I am lucky enough to have a couple of guests. Heaven Phil aren't here. They were lucky enough to win tickets to Wimbledon. So they've gone down there. There are members of the Preston on Y, Heather's beloved Preston on Y, a sports club, and you can join the sports club. And every year they have a raffle for tickets to Wimbledon. So Heaven and Phil were lucky enough to, to win those this year. So off they've gone for a day out. But what I have got, what I will start with, I've got some great feedback. It's amazing how these things work out. A while ago, I went down to Westminster to do some demonstrations, presentations on wormers and all sorts of wiggly things. And I met a guy who was taking some photographs, a guy called Matt Fowler, who's a brilliant photographer because he sent some of the photographs he took of me. Which are great for I look obviously quite mad in the photographs, but uh, the, the photographs themselves, very good. But interestingly, since I met Matt, he's been listening to the Wiggly podcast and he's emailed to say, I wanted to tell you that I've become a complete convert to the podcast. I'm doing the Three Peaks Challenge in a couple of weeks' time and my training involves, unsurprisingly, a lot of walking. I've worked my way through from 123 to 130 of the uh, episodes of the weekly podcast and he says he's off to the Lake District on Thursday and Snowden on Friday and he hopes to be up to date with the Wiggly Wigglers podcast by the end of that. He also says it's really fascinating radio and just what I need for the endless tramping. Now I need to persuade my neighbour of the benefit of pig rearing. But what amazed me is that you may well remember that a while ago we had a painting competition, Farmer Phil's painting competition, and Matt's son has won the third prize. His son Jude has won the third prize in that painting competition, which is amazing because this is someone I met in London a while ago that has got, become a slightly addicted to the Wiggly podcast. His, his boy entered the competition and completely unbeknown to me, Phil judged this competition and judged out of many numerous entries that Matt's son Jude was good enough to come into third place. So fantastic. Thanks for that, Matt. Most appreciated. I know I emailed you to say thanks for your, thanks for your feedback, but I, just, I was amazed to see how these things work out. Anyway, moving on. A while ago, the listener may remember that I went to South Africa on holiday and I, did a, I had a great interview from the curator at Kirsten Bosch Botanical Gardens most wonderful place and I also had hoped to see a worm farm that's been set up at the Mount Nelson Hotel the Pink Lady which is one of the most famous hotels in the world and um, it was astonishing and beautiful actually um, I hoped to see the worm farm there but as things transpired the person that I'd hoped to meet up there couldn't make it for various reasons but she's here today she's come over from all the way from South Africa to meet us unfortunately she's not able to meet Heather because Heather's uh, down at Wimbledon but you know that's that's aside the point but Mary Murphy who's got her own business distributing can of worms and worm factories and other round products in South Africa has come over to say hello to uh, all things Wiggly hello Mary hello Richard yeah I'm having a day out down here at Blakemere farm Wiggly Wigglers. You, you found the place all right then? In the well, end. it was quite an interesting journey. We've got the GPS system called Gertie and she kept telling us to turn left, but you know, we eventually got it. Yeah. It. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is worth avoiding now. The fact that I'm fairly frugal, but I still stick with the uh, 199 maps that you the get maps, from the, yeah, from the garage well. occasionally. So it seems to, it seems to uh, serve me well. It's a shame you, you can't see Heather, but possibly tomorrow morning if you're still about. And I, yeah. think, she, I think she's back in the county tomorrow but anyway, I'm really interested 
to find out exactly what you do in South Africa. Because when I went over to South Africa, uh, oddly, one of the first places we stayed at was a B&B in Cape Town. And the lady who ran that B&B had a wormery in her garden. But I met her at Chelsea Flower Show a few years prior to that. And I kept her contact details because I'd always kind of aspired to go to South Africa on a holiday, you know. So anyways, things I went over there and she just had a wormery made from car tyres. It was mm. brilliant. I took a bunch of photographs because I've used that when I've been talking about how to do DIY wormeries and whatnot. But you, of course, distribute and have set up the wormery in the Mount Nelson Hotel. Yeah. And how did you, where did you start then in South Africa? Is there, is there a big market for wormeries? Well, uh, there's a growing market. I think right. what we did, essentially we were doing this at home for many years and we realised that we needed to share the knowledge and raise awareness and we thought why not go to a place like the Mount Nelson we specifically approached the Mount Nelson Hotel and said if we can set it up there and people can see that the Nelly can do it the pink lady can do it well then anyone can do it yeah, and that so was the the point you know that was our point and, okay. and reason for going to them yeah 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 and so, we went, so did you approach them or did they come to you and ask you whether or not they, you, know, you could figure something out for them to enable them to deal with their food waste? No, we went directly to them because we were aware that in South Africa, like all over the world, we've got you know, problems with waste. We've you know, hardly any landfill space left. I'm sure it's the right. same here. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, companies and individuals are trying to find solutions. And we went to the Nelly and one of the... You know, waste streams that's really ignored is organic waste, waste coming out of kitchens. So we went to them and we said, how about setting up a worm farm? And, you know, there was a very brave and courageous technical manager, Rob Fiander, who said, fair enough, I'll give you a little space out the back and see what you do. And more, you know, on a daily basis, they saw the the benefits of waste reduction. They obviously had vermicompost and vermitea for their exquisite gardens. I mean, I'm sure you saw the gardens. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And so it just started to make sense. And then the hotel manager, Andrew Cook, and then the CEO, Nick Saver, said, my goodness, this is amazing. So let's build a proper home for the worms and present them with a decent menu, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So let's see, the, the worm farm itself has been going about two and a half years. The new structure opened in September last year. You know, we had a grand affair and we had the um, provincial government representative opened, officially opened it with the waste ribbon. And, and, you know, they're processing at the moment about a tonne of organic waste a month, you know, as you know. a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. I mean, worms are dealing with all that waste. Yeah, imagine, you know, we just... Yeah. You know, it's funny, at Full Cycle, that's the name of um, our company, we're... Full cycle. Full cycle. Right. You know, so we're trying to bring, you know, show people how to close like nature does, closed loops, you okay. know. The end of one process is merely a beginning of another. As humans, we tend to kind of have a linear view of waste. You yeah. know, we put it into a bin, into a little bin liner, into a bigger bin, yeah. into an even bigger bin, and then yeah. a truck comes, takes that big bin, and then just dumps it somewhere. Yeah. And so we're trying to show the actually, if you close those loops... You know, we'll all benefit it from is it. I mean, that's what our, as well, isn't it? Absolutely, of course. I mean, we we like to think of ourselves as the PR agents for earthworms. Now, right. you know? okay, <laughs> well, that seems perfectly reasonable. Absolutely. So, do they, do, do, does the Mount Nelson suffer in, in any respect with pests and problems with the wormeries? You know, they have the big fly infestations. And Not stuff at like all. That. I mean, as you know, in in South Africa, well, at, at most places, particularly in in where we are in Nortuk, it's it's um. Quite a horsey country, and okay. obviously flies are quite a an issue there. But we've noticed that house flies are just stay away from the worm farm. The right. only kind of flies that we've ever seen a problem with are fruit flies, right? And particularly the Mediterranean fruit, fruit fly, which is an invasive 
species. Okay. I don't know if you have it here. Quite possibly. Yeah. But, uh, not as, I'm not, some, it's not something I'm specifically aware of. Yeah, well, look, at the Nelly, we've never had a problem with any kind of pests, smells. I mean, it's odourless. You know, we use yeah. the realm worm factories yeah. at the, at the yeah, hotel. Yeah, yeah, I've seen the And they work brilliantly. I'm particularly impressed by is it works brilliantly off the back of possibly uh, some neglect. I appreciate that people are going out there and you know filling them up and feeding the worms, but of course they're not going to be spending a huge amount of time nurturing the worms as such, are they? Are presumably it's the employees of the hotel that go out there, possibly the, the guys that work in the kitchen, they're just putting their waste into worm bins all the time. Well, look, the way it obviously works, you know, with any kind of waste stream, it's first source separation. So in the kitchens, there's up to there can be up to seventy two chefs in there, okay. and we set up a source separation system Ian Mansez who is the executive chef was you know completely supportive and then we have a guy Mteto is his name and Mteto actually feeds the worms and okay. he just picks up the waste from the kitchens brings it to the worm farm and feeds it and it just I mean it's minimal work I mean yeah. the worms do the work you yeah, know? Yeah. We, we just we just kind of help them along we give yeah. them what it is that they need to convert all this waste into fantastic vermicompost Gorgeous, brilliant. So uh, that aside, what other kind of work are you engaged in? Well, look, essentially Full Cycle, we're a team of eco-entrepreneurs looking for solutions to environmental problems and making solutions that are easy for people to do at at home or in the workplace. And we're based out in Nortuk, which, as I said, is a quite horsey country. It's near the sea. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah, got wonderful. little farms who grow veggies, so okay. you know, bring kids groups and yeah, yeah. you know. And, and so you distribute the can of worms and, uh, yes. and the worm factory yeah. uh, right through Africa, you were saying. Yeah, yeah, and we've had contact from the Congo, Algeria, Nigeria, Malawi, Botswana, uh, obviously the you know the Sadic region, yeah. um, which are our neighbouring states of Zimbabwe, Botswana, Namibia, okay. Mozambique, and then further up into Zambia. You know, the interest is phenomenal. And I think the reason can worms work so well is because it's so easy to use. And, yeah. you know, you mentioned the tyre system, which is essentially based on the can worms design. Yeah. There are people making the tyre system in South Africa as well. Right. And again, yeah. if you're really keen on worm farming, you will find a way to make your own. Yeah. But the beauty of can worms, I think, is just, it's very simple. It's yes. very easy. Yes. And anyone can do it. That's right. You know, Absolutely. You know, we've had some really funny people contacting us saying, I'm a little bit nervous, a little bit scared of the worms. Will I have to actually touch them? And we're like, no, not if you, not yeah, if you don't yeah. need to, yeah. not if you don't want to. That's absolutely right. And I think actually distinguished between the can of worms and the, and the car tyre wormery is that it, principally that the thing works in exactly the same way. Yeah. But the can of worms is designed to be easier to negotiate. So mm. It's lighter, isn't it? Much, it's lighter, and that little tap, it, that tap is fantastic. You know, yeah. the, you know, yeah. so and just harvesting the actual vermicompost is is simple okay mm. okay that's fantastic mm. now i know we have listeners in in south africa and i've been contacted by by listeners in south africa about you know people that are interested in setting up wormy projects and mm. things like that i think I, I may even have forwarded uh, some communication to you in the past uh, but i'm just wondering how could people get hold of you how can they uh, what's the easiest way for them to get hold of you the web we've got a, a really great website and www.full cycle as in recycle.co.za okay so fullcycle.coza fantastic Mm. well mary it's been a pleasure thank Mm. you very much thanks richard nice to be here the weekly podcast let your ipod bloom well we've had some more feedback from somebody called 
We Lee Wong. And it's uh, via the uh, YouTube website. And if folks are interested in any of the YouTube videos we've got, just put in a, a search into Wiggly Wigglers into YouTube and you'll find all sorts of treats on there. Next week, incidentally, we are going to do a follow-up onto uh, some of the pieces that we've done on looking after the can of worms, can of worms husbandry, if you like. Um, but from Wee Wong, they've uh, just said thank you very much for the informative video on setting up the can of worms and they haven't apparently they haven't had to look at their uh, the manual the instructions to set up the can of worms what i would say though is it might be advisable to look at the instructions as well (laughs) because i from memory i seem to think that uh, heather and i are having a bit of fun in the process of setting up the video so it's always a good idea to look at the instructions in fact the instructions are full of troubleshooting gems as well so that's that Okay, now the listener might remember, you might remember a few weeks ago, I, uh, I'd looked at a, a book, I was, I was just reading, in the process of reading a book called Famine in the West, uh, which was written by a guy called John Gossip. And it's a great book. It's, some, it's a book that is easily pick upable and probably read you know, within a few hours, actually, because it's so easy to navigate. It's very fluid. Now, I did an interview with John uh, on, over Skype a few weeks ago. We can listen to that in a moment. But when he contacted us originally, he introduced himself as, a, as an East Yorkshire farmer with over 45 years' experience in food production. He, in, over the last few years, has become so worried about food security that he's written and published Famine in the West. It was described by Farmers Weekly's David Richardson as impressive and thoroughly researched with obvious rigour. And Jonathan Porritt, eminent writer and broadcaster, described the book as compelling, providing us with a robust and authoritative antidote to the dangerously irrelevant business-as-usual bull that dominates so much of today's debate about the future of farming. So, you know, that's that's a high accolade indeed. Uh, John says that he believes that many of our customers are, are, are probably already aware that food prices are increasing and probably would be very interested in learning a little bit more about why this is. The book will be available on the website very shortly. I was hoping to get it in this the latest version of the catalogue, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do that. I've left it too late. But it'll definitely be on the website. So if, if you guys are interested in having a look at the book, then please uh, have a search for it on the website. That said, and my little bit of marketing, so I should get a few brownie points from Heather for that one. Have a listen to what John Gossip has to say for himself. Now, listeners, some time ago, I was uh, my attention was brought to a, a book that's been published, written by a guy called John Gossip. Uh, the book's called Famine in the West, and it's kind of interesting. Some of the uh, some of the theories in the book um, really address some of the issues that we've talked about in the weekly podcast before. And fortunately, I've got John Gossip on the line now. John, it's nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you, Richard. Now, uh, when when we talk about peak oil and peak food, you know, this is often this is a concept that's still very alien to a large proportion of our population. Uh, can you just define what's meant by peak oil and peak food? Yes, well, peak oil is the time when world production of oil will peak, and from then on there'll be a steady decline, even though at the same time demand will still be increasing. So there'll be less oil per person in the world and this, the concept with peak food is similar. We can only go on expanding food production for so long. In fact, there are quite a few reasons why food production will fall. And again, the world population is rising. People are wanting a better diet with more meat, which needs more land sure. per person, and there'll be less. Sure. Now, you've written a book which 
uh, identifies lots of reasons why these this, these things are happening and why we can expect them to happen. It's common sense, really. What what sort of inspired you to write this book initially? I mean, you say it was published about 12 months ago now. That's definitely an ideal Wiggly product, I think. So we can expect to see that in the Wiggly catalogue very soon, certainly on the website. But I mean, what, what inspired you? What's your background? I'm a farmer. I'm 62 years old and I've been farming all my life. But I've always been interested in energy and the amount of energy that goes into food production compared to the energy that comes out. And, you know, I, I came to think that because we're so dependent on oil, that there must come a time when we'll struggle really because at the moment it takes about 10 calories of fossil energy to produce one calorie of food. Right. And plainly that can't go on forever. Right. And, and you're, you, you, you were a conventional farmer, were you? Uh, yes, I grow wheat and vegetables really. Right. And so consequently you, you used a lot of uh, artificial fertilisers. That's correct, yes. We use you know, pesticides. We, we, use, we do everything pretty much like most farmers. I'm just wondering because I've had these great discussions with Farmer Phil before now about the you know the, the amount of energy that gets used in the production of, uh, of artificial fertilizers and really it kind of outweighs its usefulness compared to using less conventional means i.e uh, you know going going organic in many respects is far more energy efficient than, uh, than than using these artificially produced products i mean have you got any thoughts about that what would you say to farmer phil when he argues the good argument for artificial fertilizers I think there are many good arguments for organics, but unfortunately I don't believe that the world going organic would be the right thing to do. I think that would actually cause mass starvation. But I think we should use some of the best principles of organic farming, you know, such as crop rotation, the putting back of uh, manures and all nuisance. I'm in favour of organics as far as it goes, but I, I honestly don't think that's the answer. We've we've got to sort of use best principles of modern farming and the best principles of organic as well. Why don't you think organic farming is the answer? Because lots of organic farmers would argue that that is the only way to go. Well, I, I just think that the in my own case, for instance, I grow carrots and onions, and if we weren't able to use weed killers, we'd struggle terribly. And the other thing is that most of the livestock production tends to be in the west in, in the uk and done in large-scale units and the arable production is in the east right. you know and, and so the manure is in the wrong place unfortunately right so i mean as a farmer you know you've you've kind of trickled on when did you start farming presumably when you were quite young yes as soon as i left school when i was 17 okay um so you know you've spent a good proportion of your life producing a variety of crops um, so at what point did you think oh hang on a minute you know there are issues here that need to be addressed and I, I need to spend a little bit of time putting this down on paper well I've thought for a long while that there's issues that need to be addressed but it's only recently that I've realised that the world's coming to a crisis point you know in the last few years I've realised that we're not too far away from a crisis point at one time it seemed as if we might be able to go on for some time but you know the problems of peak oil and possibly other shortages of fossil and all the inputs mean that we, in my opinion, not too far away from a crisis now. There's lots of people say this is scaremongery. You know, you're just you're just creating uh, problems that aren't likely to exist. I mean, people would say, have you read scientific papers to to back up your argument? And um, surely that everyone would know that this is the case. You know, everyone would know that we're heading for imminent disaster if that was indeed true. So how would how can you defend your argument? How can you defend the fact that you're you're saying that you know we really need to be mindful that uh, we're about to, f- to face some f- quite hard issues 
I think with a lot of things, we, we do tend to bury our heads in the sand. You know, it, it's a bit same as climate change. People would like to think it's not happening because they feel that there's nothing they can do about it. And you know, if there's nothing you can do about it, you, you, you just tend to think, well, why? Let's carry on. Absolutely. But, uh, so what can people do about it? Well, I, I think that the two issues are linked in that if we can use less oil in general it will make it last longer and can be used for food production and at the same time that that in itself will help to avert climate change so the big thing is to use less energy in, in our everyday lives and in my opinion the only way to do that is to tax it heavily instead of taxing income if energy was very expensive we would all tend to find ways of using less and there would be innovation and you know the people would put millions of pounds into finding ways and methods of using less both in agriculture transport and everywhere else but you know we need some radical solutions and i know it's going to be hard to do because it won't be popular and i can see why governments don't really want to bring in unpopular measures no i mean there's no way gordon brown now is going to turn around and say well look you know we've got to pay four quid a litre um because if we don't do that and uh, we don't start using those kind of investments those taxes in order to develop more sustainable initiatives then we're all heading for uh, for a complete disaster there's no way he's going to say that is he not until un, until we can raise awareness. One of the reasons for this book was to raise awareness. Uh, Gordon Brown and anyone else will only bring those measures in when the public want him to. And I'm afraid it looks as if that's quite some time off yet. Right. I think you're absolutely right. But do you think the writing's on the wall anyway? Do you think that we're seeing these global increases in, in, in fossil fuel production, you know, in, in, terms of, in terms of cost, production costs, certainly, but also the fact that we now there is a, a general consensus that the, the era of cheap food is at an end. I mean, we're already seeing riots in, in some of the lesser well-off communities across the world because food prices are soaring. Yeah, well, everything's happened in the last year, sort of thing, and hopefully it will wake people up to the fact that we can't continue as we are doing, that we are going to be short of food, and that you know a lot more effort and money is going to have to go into um, food production. Okay, so what are the other issues that you've identified in your book, then? One of the big issues that I think that needs being to people's attention is that besides oil peaking, there's so many ways that we could have sudden cutoffs in our supplies you know the, the islamist groups including al-qaeda would really like to deprive the west of middle eastern oil probably one of the reasons why america's been so keen to stabilize the middle east mm. but unfortunately that's not worked very well but if we've got a sudden cutoff of oil or a reduction in our supplies you know the present problems up in in Grangemouth in Scotland, uh, you know, would seem very small indeed. There would really be panic. Yes, oh, absolutely. And because the irony there is that we're very soon we're going to run out of our North Sea reserves anyway. You know, that's kind of the, we're, we're, that's imminent, isn't it? Yeah, it's declining fast, and and so a lot of oil fields aren't in the rest of the world. Um, unfortunately, you know, we we just really could could have done with the North Sea oil to last a lot longer. But, yes, but yeah, it's declining fast. So what other issues have you, have you addressed in the book? Well, we've talked about population rising and people in the Far East wanting more meat in the diet, which needs more land per person, when there'll actually be less land per person because there's a lot of loss of land each year through urban development and desertification, soil erosion and so on. We are actually losing land each year, and a lot of land at that. It's basically that there's going to be less of everything when people expect more, and, and it just doesn't add up. You know, the, the maths don't work. No. No, they don't, for my own 
personal perspective, I can't see. Uh, <laughs> I just can't see a way out. I think I don't want to be the uh, the bringer of uh, doom and gloom or anything. But I, I just don't see that uh, a population uh, expanding in the way it is will in any way be supported by a, an environment that's essentially been degraded off the back of this this population explosion. Yeah, I mean, I, do, I really hope that I'll be proven to be wrong. But uh, unless we start warning the public, you know, we're just going to get closer and closer to a crisis without anything being done. Right. So, uh, I mean, uh, other than increasing the cost of fossil fuels, which is is, is happening progressively anyway, and there's there's absolutely no way now we're, we're seeing uh, major hikes in uh, natural gas prices and oil prices and so on. There's absolutely no way those prices are going to go down. You'd have to be naive to think that they would now what are the answers actually there's enough sunshine comes to us each day to meet all our needs but fossil fuels have been so cheap that we've had no need to really find ways of collecting that sunshine in an efficient way right. i mean fa- farmers are in fact solar collectors you know that i mean that's what we do we, we use plants to collect sunshine uh, the energy of the sun and that i'm sure there would be ways that that could be done better and we do address some of those ways in the book using more of the crop using the straw better there are several ways of recycling nutrients better all those things that are addressed in the book so your book has it been is it very well received well so far we've really only done it by mail order by putting it on our site and and so on yeah uh, and yeah people people have liked it you know we've had some good responses to it we're quite pleased with this but it's it's surprising how quickly things have moved on <laughs> much quicker than than we expected really when uh, I really hope that we get a good harvest this year because, you know, things are really on a knife edge. I mean, yeah. if we if we get a, a couple of bad harvests, there's just no reserves left. Right. Did hear someone say that onions were going to be in short supply this year? Well, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> oh, you hear about all these things. <laughs> yeah, it was on TV. They were showing uh, that there was going to be a shortage of onions, but uh, we never saw it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> there's been plenty of imports you know I think English onions were short but there's been plenty of imports from Poland and Holland and almost everywhere and they're starting to come in from the southern hemisphere now when it gets to this time of year oh well I mean, it, I'm sure that these things just get leaked and they get, get the prices up yeah it did cause a little bit of a demand for a short while but, yeah, uh, yeah. but it didn't really make any difference to the price I can well imagine <laughs> so did you publish your book yourself then yes it's just a self-published book yeah alright fantastic well that should be quite good I think nice to speak to you nice speaking to you Richard yeah. oh, cheers then ok then Thank you, bye. bye. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. I think we'll almost certainly back together, all three of us, on the Wiggly Sofa. In the meantime, Mary's gone for a wander around the garden, so it's just goodbye from me.